Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. My podcasts often deal with distressing situations which are not suitable for children and some adults for that matter. Some of what I discuss may trigger uncomfortable emotions. If that does occur, please reach out to Lifeline, Beyond Blue or any other support service or person you feel comfortable with. It's also important to note that there's always two sides, sometimes more, to every story. My guests provide their recollection of an event or incident, sharing their thoughts and their emotions, but it's theirs and theirs alone. Not everyone will agree with them. I never want to tell any guest what to say or what not to say. So please try and keep that in mind. Today's podcast is my guest's version of events, and there'll always be others who see it differently. Hello, I'm Narelle Fraser. I was a cop with Victoria Police for 27 years, 15 of those as a detective, having dealt with all types of crime from a stolen bicycle to a stolen life. I witnessed the effect crime has on all those involved and became one of those victims myself in 2012 when I was diagnosed with PTSD. However, out of adversity comes other opportunities like this, my own podcast. I still pinch myself but thanks for listening and coming with me as we explore the human side and impact of crime months of extensive searching they came back and said nil documents found i'm not in the system i was lost they didn't know anything about me i don't exist today we're going to be discussing childhood trauma including cruelty sexual and physical abuse and suicide. It's very confronting, it's raw and honest, and it isn't easy listening at times. So I want you to consider if it's right for you. And if not, don't worry, because there's always next week. But I suppose unless we discuss these uncomfortable subjects, we're not going to learn and we're not going to understand how to communicate with and help those who haven't been as fortunate as many of us. Tracy Oldham has many strings to her bow, including but not limited to being a former marriage celebrant. She won the Hume Australian Citizen of the Year Award in 2020. She's the founder of Speak Up, an organisation which has been going since 1986 and all LGBTQIA plus matter 
Oh, that's so easy to say. Um, a Community Connector volunteer for the Department of Health in Epping. She's a fierce mental health advocate. She was married for 19 years, three beautiful kids, when her husband went to work one day and didn't come home. Well, actually, he never came home again. Tracy and her children had been abandoned for another woman he'd met. But she found love again, quite unexpectedly, in the arms of another woman, and she's never been happier. Tracy knew the feeling of abandonment far too well. She was abandoned as a young child, learning far too early about traumas that life can throw at us. So how does a young woman, or a young person for that matter, come through all that trauma and manage the complexities that we all have to deal with as well? Tracy managed to circumnavigate her childhood with a strength from somewhere, God knows where, but certainly it wasn't from those who most of us would expect to learn from, and that's our parents. Her recovery has been slow, it's been long, and it's been painful. But Tracy is no ordinary woman, and she's not one to give up. She's been dogged by tough times, and many times felt she was failing and couldn't go on. But Tracy won't be silenced. She talks candidly about her difficulties with honesty and openness. And really, it's incredible that she's not filled with hate and vitriol. Not that I'd ever blame her, mind you, but she's quite the opposite. Let me introduce you to this wonderful woman. And hello, Tracy, and thank you so much for joining us today on NFI. Oh, thank you very much, Narelle, for inviting me on. Um, I must admit, I do apologise. That is a tongue twister, that LGBTQIA+. Um, <laughs> Can you say that, like, does that just roll off the tongue for you? LGBTQIA+, but it's like um, two or beef patties, burst sauce, lychee, pickles, onions, and sesame seed bun. <laughs> oh, I find that a tongue twister. Oh, that's brilliant, Tracy. I find that a bit of a tongue twister. Um, I've got many a free burger on that one. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Um, so where do we start? Can you tell us a little bit of background about your early years? Well, um, I was, uh, my mother got pregnant um, to my father that she'd already left and one night dalliance, I was, she found out she was pregnant with me, tried to self-abort me many times, obviously didn't work. By the time I was two weeks old, she just couldn't stand the sight of me anymore. I just looked too much like my father and I was just too much of a reminder of him. So she palmed me off to um, my uncle who four weeks later gave me back because I wouldn't stop crying. And this, I was bounced back and forwards um, until I was two and a half. In between that time, I had um, three cases of near-death <laughs> bronchopneumonia because of neglect. I was sort of um, just bounced around families, between fa- the same families, funny enough, but didn't um, actually form any attachment to anybody. So it was just... Horrible. I mean. But how would you form an attachment, Tracy, to somebody when you are just being bounced around from household to household? Like you couldn't form an attachment, could you? Well, it's weird because all my life I felt this emptiness, like I pined for someone that I didn't even know. And 
when I was older, I got a dog and I named it after my brother who I didn't even know. I eventually found out I did know him because I did live with him and apparently we were very close. He actually had um, severe problems because he pined for me so badly because he was older. Mm. But I, he was the only one I obviously did get an attachment with and that was reefed away. So each time you thought you, um, you started to bond, you would be literally packed up and moved back to either my mother who just didn't want me and she made it very, very painfully clear. Um, I'd stay with her for a little while and then I'd be shunted back to um, another auntie or uncle who wherever would take me. And I was always made to be known that I was only the cousin or I was not wanted. I, I was there under sufferance. Um, and because of that, obviously their siblings knew I didn't belong, so they would always keep me on the outer as well. So you were sort of just there, mm-hmm. um, like a bit of furniture. You didn't really talk to anyone. You didn't interact with the family. You were just in the background. So how could you not – can you explain to me, you said um, that you didn't know your brother. Um, how could you <laughs> – this is probably very naive, but how could you not know your brother? Well, it's – my story, I swear to God, you couldn't make it up. This woman used to come and visit me at my school gate. Mm-hmm. Now, I remember a woman with a pram with a little boy. Now, he, she came every day. One day, then one of my foster family said to me, has anyone been seeing you at school? And I was so excited. I said, yeah, this lovely lady comes and we have lunch, blah, blah, blah. And this went on for ages. She told me not to talk to her again because she eats kids. So from that day on, I never saw that woman again. Little did I know that woman was my mother and that boy was my brother. Goodness me. Sorry, you've just <laughs> you've just thrown me that, sorry, but I'm sure you just said then that um, don't speak to that woman, she eats kids. Yeah. Well, it gets worse because the woman gave me a sandwich, so then I was convinced I'd eaten somebody from school. <laughs> I mean, probably said, yeah, I had a very, very, I mean, it sounds funny now when I say it, but oh, at the time Tracy, it was horrible. Oh, so, Tracy, I can't believe I'm even laughing. The woman, Far out. Have you seen um, Flowers in the Addict and Sybil? Uh, no. Have you seen Flowers in the Addict? No, no. Oh, well. What a shame, you need to see it or read it. <laughs> the woman makes, my auntie makes that woman look like a, a nun. <laughs> so anyway, I was told never to, I was told never to speak to that woman again and um, the boy stopped visiting. Now, I didn't even know the boy was visiting me. Mm. I found all this out many years later when I actually caught up with him. Mm. Anyway, he was um, two years older than me and he just, it crushed him apparently. He just he said, I, I, I just pine for you my whole life. He's 60 now and he said, it still haunts me. He was driving to the house one night to um, visit me as apparently he always did and they turned around and I never saw him again till 2017. Well, we will go into 2017 and meeting your brother um, because – there's a lot that happened between when you never saw your brother again until 2017. Oh, God, yes. Yeah. You said uh, just before that uh, you were in foster care or care. Can you tell, talk us through that? 
It's called voluntary placement. Um, it's got to be one of the most despicable Victorian rules that anyone could possibly have. It's where a child, in, well, a parent could literally just palm their kid off to a friend, family, or even a stranger. As long as they had someone to take care of them, no paperwork was required. Um, and because of that, um, a few years ago, I was always told that I was a ward of the state. So I went to Freedom of Information to get my childhood records. And after months of extensive searching, they came back and said, nil documents found. I'm not in the system. I was lost. They didn't know anything about me. I don't exist. They found a couple of um, childhood records. That's how I knew I had pneumonia so many times. Um, other than that, I just vanished, which apparently was very, very common with voluntary placed children because nobody did keep a record, unlike foster care and institutions. And because of that, um, I cannot be or foster, anyone that was in voluntary placement, even though we were out of care permanently, we are not recognised as forgotten Australians or care leavers which means we don't qualify for the national redress either. We don't have any legal rights to um, claim. So I think you might have said to me at one stage before we were um, talking about today that you were an invisible generation. We were. We still are. Uh, the Victorian government done a submission in... Um, and they found out that there was an estimated 100,000 children placed in care between 1928 and 2003, 49,000 out of that 100,000 children are not accounted for, 49,000 lost children. And they said there's probably more. That's just an estimate. You literally had a kid and then you just gave it to anyone. <laughs> What years was this, Tracy, that you're talking about where um, you're, where you went from, um, you know, place to place and into uh, voluntary placement care? What sort of years was this? 1962. Mind you, the um, Supreme Court knew that I was in temporary care because it's on the records. Now, that's the only record that I could find because it was on the divorce records um, and no one bothered to check up what happened to me. I just got forgotten about and lost. How does that feel, Tracy? Well, it was worse when um, I applied to, when I found out from Freedom of Information that I wasn't a ward of the state, I thought, oh, well, I'll go to Open Place. Now, do you know who Open Place is? No. No. Well, Open Place is a um, is for forgotten Australians. Mm -hmm. It's... We can go to get support. Any, they, they, they're a very good organisation, so psychiatric, any support you need. So I filled out the registration form. They were happy to take my um, registration. Two years went by, and for two years I actually felt good, though I didn't like being having a label as a forgotten Australian, I at least felt like I belonged. Mm -hmm. Two years went by and I emailed them. I said, I've heard nothing from you people. Oh, uh, we've looked into your case and because you don't have DHHS says they've got no record of you, you don't qualify for a forgotten Australian. Sorry about that. Sorry we sent you the welcome pact. It wasn't very tactful. <gasps> so that's it. I was I just sat there and stared at the computer. My heart sunk down to my ankles. I just thought, oh, my God, 
Freedom of Information told me I don't exist. Open Place accepted me as a forgotten Australian two years later. Told me, "Oops, sorry, that's we, you don't fit our criteria for funding." That's what it was for funding. Um, I said, "But I don't understand that my criteria is exactly the same." I said, "I was violently, shockingly abused as a child." I said, "I was in out of care permanently." So what's the difference? You've got no paperwork. Sorry, goodbye. End of story. And that was it. You know, I'm. I'm just thinking to myself now, so, and this sounds terribly cruel, but it's what it is. So you didn't even belong as a forgotten Australian? No, uh, which meant that we, we've had no apologies. Like I went to the National Apology only because I don't know how I slipped through the system. Yeah. Um, everyone, forgotten Australians, the Aboriginals, the, you name it, there's a list going a mile long of all the people that have had apologies except for the voluntary placements. We've got nothing. I have been lobbying the council, the, man, uh, the member of parliament, senators. I thought that I had people on board but they've all run scared and suddenly they're all AWOL. I keep getting told this needs to be brought to parliament. We will help you. We will help you. We will help you. And then they don't help me. <laughs> They've all just gone to ground. Where are all those uh, 48,999 people? You said there was 49,000 kids um, that were placed into a voluntary placement care like you were. So how do you contact them? Well, there's a page called Forgotten Australians that I'm on. And as far as they're concerned, they consider me a forgotten Australian. Mm-hmm. Um, I put a post on asking for voluntary, and a few people didn't even know what it was. And they said, "Oh my God, that's what I was. That's what happened to me." I said, "Well, then you were voluntary placed." Mm. Oh, I was just palmed to different families, so no one even. I only know it's called voluntary placed because of um, the freedom of information. Before that, I just thought I was just a kid palmed around. You didn't get a fancy name. It's um, it's though there's a lot of contradictions because they said I don't exist, and my query is if if I didn't exist as a child, then why was my auntie claiming child endowment? Oh, I don't know what the the answer is, Tracy. But then if the government don't, well, how would I know? Goodness me! It just talks about the contradictions in the um, you know, like. Their, their, their definition of a care lever is any child that's in care um, under 18 that doesn't live in their permanent with their family. Well, what is a voluntary place? We were in out of care. We didn't live with our family. So what's their point? It's a bit of a – and I've showed – I've sent this to a lot of um, MPs who didn't even – have never heard of voluntary placement. They've all sat there and came back and said, oh, my God, I'm absolutely disgusted. I didn't even know this happened. But the thing is, it's, it's the fact that they had a duty of care to, to follow a child's um, well-being. If they knew that child had been put in care, then as a government organisation, they had a duty of care – to at least check up on that child's well-being. Instead, which was common in those days and very lapsadaisical stuff, they just, um, all right, see ya, because it was just easier. Mm. I keep going back, you were just invisible. Like I just, 
it's beyond um, comprehension. Tracy, I'm not sure how you feel about, um, and we don't need to go into the um, graphic detail, but you said that you were, um, uh, you suffered horrific, uh, horrendous child abuse. Where did that occur and when? From as young as I can remember, um, I'd either be, fondled with as a baby in a nappy but the worst one believe it or not was the psychological abuse I had a very very bizarre twisted uncle who took great satisfaction in terrorizing me he would actually wait until I had my afternoon nap I'd only be about two three and he'd creep around the back and he'd put his hand through the window and grab my neck every bloody day I became a nervous wreck or he'd wait until I was eating lunch and then he'd go around and knock on the front door and he'd say he was from the St Joseph's Baby Home coming to take unwanted kids away, not scream the house down. He would just do the psychological things. It was You've got no idea. I mean, people, when they talk about abuse, they don't realise psychological abuse just eats you. Mm. Mm. I mean, I was two years old. I had to stand every morning. I had to stand at attention in front of my auntie with my hands out so she could check my fingernails to make sure I hadn't been, well, she called it banjoing, masturbating, in other words, two years old. And I've always had white spots on my fingers to this. I've never heard that expression, banjoing. Oh. Oh. Oh, and two or three. I mean, I grew up with this, so you, you got it all, you know, fiddling or banjoing. So, And, of course, I didn't even know what the hell she was talking about. So the moment she'd see a, a white spot, she'd put my fingers over the stove and burn my fingers. And I'd be looking at it, I don't even know what you're talking about. You wouldn't. As I got older, gradually I, I was. Yeah, so that's what I'm saying. This It's the systematic mental abuse. And you got this every day. You didn't know what was coming. It was it was terrible. Um, I, I'd actually prefer the, the physical abuse than I would the mental because you never knew when it was happening. It would just explode. It was like living on Mount Vesuvius. You just never knew when it was going to explode. Um, from seven years old, um, I moved to another family where for the first time I was actually allowed to be a normal kid until... One of the um, sons took a very special interest in me and from seven I was raped every day, sometimes more. Did anyone know about that? I tried to tell he, my auntie and she slapped me face and said, don't ever say that about her son again. Little did I know that he was a serial um, sexual offender in the family, but no one done anything about it. So this went on for two years. The only peace of mind I got was I used to, I was the original Ninja Turtle. I used to lift up the concrete lid and hide in the gutter and walk. I don't know if you know, in Melbourne, you used to be able to lift up the concrete lids and you could walk all the way through the tunnels. Yeah. And I'd come out at the other end of the creek, and that was my only saving grace, was mine. So. That would be your only escape, Tracy, like to. It was. Just to find some sort of. Um, Oh, solace is ridiculous. Refuge. Yeah, refuge in a bloody tunnel. Yeah. Oh, my God. But it was wonderful. I loved it. You know what? It was just like it was such freedom. (laughs) And I just, if I could have lived there, I would have. Um, Yeah, but it was just terrible. I mean, you just, and then when I wet the bed, because obviously 
I had to walk past his bedroom to go to the be- uh, to the toilet. So as soon as I'd go past his room, he was like a trapdoor spider. He just hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Life is full of awesome what-ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Grab me. So I started to wet the bed. Because then my auntie started hanging my sheets out the top story window and then inviting the kids in to look at my wet bed. Oh, my God, you've got no idea. <laughs> no, you're right. I haven't, Tracy. I have got no idea. I mean, who does that? I mean, that was just like the most trauma. And then I had to go to school the next day. She'd done that for a week. Every day I got bashed at school. Every night I'd come home and my sheets would be hanging out the windows and it'd be all these school kids going in and out of the house because my mattress reeked. But, I mean... I'd wet the bed forever. I always had, for obvious reasons now. <laughs> but as a child, I didn't know that. They took me to the doctors. You're lazy. Every doctor in those days was laziness. Oh, Tracy, that's terrible. You didn't have a psychological reason that you would. <laughs> so, um, and it never got any better. It just got worse. So when I, I lived with that family I went to live with, the worst part was is, as twisted as my one of my foster families were, I'd been with them the longest and I grew up thinking that they were actually my parents. Now, the funny thing is, is I thought my mother was my mum, my dad was my dad, my father, my uncle was my daddy and my auntie was my mummy. And so you wonder why I grew up so bloody screwed up. <laughs> well, I'll give you the tip, Tracy. You do not sound screwed up. In fact, to be honest, just in the last, how long have we been talking, 20 minutes or so, I think how can you possibly tell this story with, you know, quite a bit of humour? Because I talk about it in the third person. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you have to. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone has a defining moment in their life and when I turned seven that was my defining moment because, as I said, I thought these people, as twisted as they were, I thought they were my parents. Now, 
I had formed a bond with them, whatever bond it was, but it would have, by today's standards it would have been trauma bonding. Um, they took me for a drive to visit one of my aunties. Next thing, they drove off. I realised they'd forgot me. I ran down the street. I literally ran all the way up Montmorency Road because that's where they, they lived at the time. They put me in the car, drove me back, and I never saw them again. They dumped me. I was standing there pounding on the window. You forgot me. You forgot me. <laughs> and, um, yeah, I just watched them driving off, and I never saw them again for another until they decided one day to come and visit. They didn't want to give me the time of day. I thought, what happened? It broke my heart. It literally, and you know, to this day, I still carry that hurt. It was that profound. Who does that? Who just dumps a child like that? Just how could you not <laughs> carry that hurt, Tracy? How could you, like, not only have you been abandoned by your mum, but you've also been abandoned by the people that you thought was your mum that wasn't actually your mum. Like, it's just, it's beyond comprehension, really. It, I think, I mean, I've got three kids and I, I used to, when I had them, I, I actually used to, at various ages they got to, I would really identify. I bet you would. And I used to think, how could you do that? I couldn't even think of doing it. I, and to think that nobody stopped to think this is actually going to hurt her. I was just locked upstairs, told to shut up whinging, and oh, I just remember I just pounded on that window for Oh, I don't even know how that window didn't get pushed in, but no, it didn't make the slightest bit of difference. They were all cold, cold fish. And all they'd done was went fruit picking. Oh, <laughs> uh, Tracy, do you remember any fun as a kid? Huh. Um, the fact that I've got to think about it's pretty much, <laughs> I think, um, living in the Oh, going down in my gutter, in my drain, that was fun. Well, I don't even know whether it was fun or whether it was more just relief. I probably did have kid fun on my own, but no, I can't say that Um, nothing stands out. God. I wasn't allowed to be a child. Um, that was one of the rules, was to stop acting so immature. I'd be about four or five, stop acting so immature, because everywhere I lived, I lived with adults. Mm-hmm. Um, and everything I'd done, all like I always had a shocking curiosity. Oh, my God. I'd always do autopsies on everything. I'd have to pull things apart to find out why they worked. I'd pull my dolls apart to find out how they moved. Now, I was very, very young. Shit myself because I couldn't put them back together, so I hid them under the house. And, of course, they got found. That meant that I was going to grow up to be a twisted serial killer. <laughs> You've got no idea. No one could just say, oh, you know, you shouldn't have done that. No. But um, it's certain things that fun was not one of them. Was there anybody, uh, anyone who gave you love or showed you any type of love as a child? No, absolutely not. What I was told every day of the day, from as far back as my memory can go, I have been taught. All the stories I know about my childhood and how bad it is is because it was told to me my entire life by my auntie and uncle who derived great pleasure from letting me know how sadistic and how cruel 
everyone had been to me, how my mother neglected me, and they told me every graphic detail just so that I knew how much I wasn't wanted. And I got that every day of my life. I'd get told by my auntie, if I find out I've got cancer and I'm dying, I'm taking you with me. No way am I going to inflict you on my family. It just just went on every day systematically. I wasn't allowed to speak to anyone unless spoken to. My name wasn't Tracy. It was Germ because I was considered a disease on the family. Um, I used to have to have internal examinations because my auntie was convinced I was always having sex. Um, I, it, it, from as far back as I can remember, everything was about sex. It didn't matter how young I was. Uh, I wet my pants at school. My auntie deliberately made me wear the same pants so that the kids would tease me, so the teacher told me to take them off. Anyway, the kids found out I wasn't wearing undies. I was only in prep. Anyway, the boys got me in the toilets. Well, my auntie knew what had happened. She knew the truth, but she told my uncle that I was lying there letting the boys play with me. He strapped my legs and backside so much that I was lying in on the ground and I couldn't go to school for a week. I had to be bandaged. Um, and she, from that day, she kept saying, see, she's a trollop like her mother. And what I was, I was about five. Oh, yeah. That's the sort of in-your-head stuff she would do. It's, it's what I said, I would have rather the physical, I could handle the physical abuse, it's the mental, what she'd do to you because you, you were powerless. She'd lie. She would stand and she was so damn convincing. <laughs> I would have believed her. Yeah, but of course you're going to believe her when you're a little kid. Uh, who are these, and we won't name them, but these aunties and uncles, were they real aunties and uncles or people that you called auntie and uncle? Well, we called everyone auntie and uncle in my age group because if you knew somebody long enough, but one of them was my uncle. He was my brother's, um, sorry, my father's brother, yes. And he tried to be close to me, you know, a couple of times, but he wasn't allowed to and neither was I. When I went back to live with them, because when I was, when they left me at seven, they came back to visit a year later or whatever and I went running up to him. I was so excited to see him and I jumped on his lap. Well, my auntie grabbed me off and told me she knew I was trying to push myself into him. What? Yeah. <laughs> it's just twisted. So I was never allowed to touch twisted, him again. you know? It is. That's what I'm saying. Every, yeah. <laughs> You've got to wonder what happened to that woman that she was so obsessed with it. Oh. So I wasn't allowed to hug him and um, because, see, what happened was she had her own three children, grown children. My uncle had no children. He was a very small frame man. I was a very small frame little girl. He had black hair. I, I looked like he spit out of his mouth and she hated that. She couldn't stand it. And it was all about this is my family. I mean, it was so bad. I'll give you an example of how much she hated me. I had um, perforated appendix and um, paranoidus and she knew I had it for a week. She punched me in the stomach. Um, I collapsed at school, got me to the hospital and they wanted, uh, they reckon within about 15 minutes I would have been dead. They just managed to get it and the doctor knew it was neglect and he asked me, and I was so he asked me while I was in recovery because I used to always protect them, and I said to him, "Well, you know, look, my auntie knew I was sick, but she wanted me to die, <laughs> so I just blurted it all out." 
He went to his superiors. Of course, in those days, you don't rock boats. He was fuming. He wanted to have. He wanted to go to the police. That's the sort of thing. I mean, you got no idea when people say the words like psychological abuse. I mean, that is so broad. You don't realise it scars you so deeply. Can you tell us what life was like as a teenager for you? Like, it's hard enough for anyone going through adolescence, but for you, it must have been almost torture. It was. That's the word. I was tortured. What happened was. When I went, I went back to live with my um, that first family that dumped me at seven. I went back to live with them because I was kicked out at ten. The other family kicked me out because apparently I, um, my grandfather who I didn't know visited and he paid too much attention to me. And the woman got jealous that he paid more attention to me than he did of his own kids, so she kicked me out. So. I went back to live with them at ten, and I don't know what happened. They went from just being mildly twisted to absolutely certifiably sadistic. Um, I got Christmas presents. She went out the back when my uncle's back was turned and she burnt them all. As I got a little bit older, I got my uh, – it took once every day when I got to high school, she would do it in – well, now I know why, but I didn't then. She'd do an internal in examination because everything she was convinced – if because I used to play a lot of sport and I used to lie on the grass all the time. I used to muck around and I'd always have grass um, rashes on me. Well, that's because I was on my back apparently with my legs open. So I'd just look at her like, are you kidding? <laughs> what are you accusing me of? So – when I wasn't having internal in, in examinations, I still had to have the white spot inspection on my fingers, and God help if they were found because you didn't don't even know what would happen. Um, she would stop me from having a bath and then go to the school and tell my friends that I hadn't bathed. I said, but she won't let me. If, if, I can't even begin to tell you what it was like. I'd get... A's in school, they'd want to put my work on display, she'd smash it or break, rip them up just so that I couldn't be better than her kids. It was just horrible, horrible, horrible. My teenagehood was just, by the time I was 13 I ran away, I couldn't take it anymore. I was, I had a nervous breakdown in the classroom, I was just like, I fell apart, I just picked up the chairs and started throwing them across the room, I don't even know what happened, I just lost it. I would it'd get to about 20 past three and I'd start shaking, visibly shaking, just knowing I had to go home because they would put me in scolding baths. They would try to hang me with a shower curtain. They would um, lock me in the wardrobe, jam my fingers in the wardrobe. Um, I, I, I'd have to have my own cuddlery, my own blankets, my own towels because I couldn't give them a disease. Um and, of course, this is in my formative years, as you said, as a teenager. While everyone else is having fun, I wasn't allowed to have friends. No one was allowed to speak to me. Um, I was becoming more and more of a neurotic. So at 13, I ran away. I just couldn't take it any longer. And one of the mother, child, children's mothers who knew dobbed me in and the police came to get me the, and found me the next day and took me back to the Faulkner Police Station and... Um, they just sent me back to my abusers, even though I told them absolutely graphic detail what they'd been doing. He'd done nothing, and I was sent back, and then it was on ten times worse. It was like 
I can't even describe what my mental state was like. Tracy, how have you ever got to adulthood, um, to meeting your husband, having children of your own, and having the outlook that you've got now? Like, it's easy, yes, we can be a little bit um, uh, flippant about it, but it, but not for one minute do I um, understand what you've been through, but how have you got to this point after all this, like to find love, whether it be with your, and I'm, you know, with your ex-husband, with your kids, with Carol, like how have you got to this point? Do you want the honest truth? Yep. With alcohol and pills, that is the only way I could survive. I found out at 16 that because I ended up on the streets because I, um, I couldn't take anything, I could not take them another minute. It was just I was going to kill someone, I literally. Um, I found out very young that alcohol and pills numbed me. They stopped me from feeling anything. The more I took, the less I felt until it became part of my life. And that's not what people want to hear, but that's 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 the truth. It was the only thing I could rely on. Mm. Mm. It was the only thing that gave me support, that I knew it was there when no one else was. Trouble is I got to the stage that the more pills I took, the more they started to have no effect on me. So I'd end up crushing them and putting them in the bottle, shaking it, and I'd take it that way. I was just a zombie. I don't even... When people call you a survivor, you're not surviving. What you do is you're just going one day at a time. You don't have any plans. You don't have any, oh, look, I'm going to make something positive happen tomorrow. No, each day you go to bed and you pray to God you're not going to wake up the next day, but you do. Mm. And you go through the same shit mm. and you have a few more pills just to make sure that you don't have to buddy put up with anything. Mm. And it gets to the stage you put it behind, it starts getting pushed further and further into the abyss of your mind and you just stop thinking full stop. You don't have anything. You don't, you're don't. just not even functioning until one day you think there's got to be more to life than this and then you, you do the inevitable. I've tried to commit suicide so many times I've lost count and none of them were a cry for help because each one of them, they did not think I'd survive. Every doctor, and if you look at my medical reports, will say she should not have lived. We do not know how the hell she lived. But like with the pneumonia, like with um, my peritonitis, for some reason I'm, I'm bloody unkillable. <laughs> Jesus, I'm sure I was cursed because <laughs> – but sooner or later, <laughs> I mean, the thing, it got to the stage that I – found somebody that was um, going to commit suicide down when I lived in St Kilda and I talked this person out of it. And I was listening to what I was saying and I thought, Christ, I'm not much better than you. And this went on a long time. I, I used to talk to suicide people because somebody down there knew that I was good at it. So I'd sit on the, go to their rooms or I'd go down on the St Kilda Pier and I'd talk them out of suicide. Some were so far gone I'd just let them drift away. They were just too far gone, though. But at least I sat with them while they passed away. They weren't alone. And then I just turned around and decided, well, 
I'm going to do a course. So it's, I ended up doing a course for Grow Mental Health for Schizophrenics. We're in my own group. And gradually I just joined youth groups and built up the strength and started to surround myself with positive people and just started to feel better about myself. And gradually, you know, you stop dealing with things. See, I never dealt with my past, never have. I went to a, I was in a rehab in 1986 for um, alcohol and pills. It was a joke. Um, my therapist had photos of dogs up on the wall and I could see straight away the biggest crisis in her life was running out of shampoo or dog shampoo. So I asked her what life experience she had and she had none. So I ended up turning the packs and I ended up doing a psychoanalysis on her. Um, I don't say that I've never actually been to a therapist or a psychiatrist because they don't get it. They might think they get it, but they don't. Um, life, you've got to experience life. You've got to work it out for yourself and you've got to keep being determined. And do you know what kept me going? I got to the stage I thought, fuck this, I'm not going to let those bastards get the better of me. This is what they want. They want to see me down. So I'd hit rock bottom once too many times and I thought that's it. You it's the old cliche, you can't go any further once you've hit rock bottom. You can only go up. And I did. I started to pick myself up and I got very, very involved very young in the community and started to volunteer and I lost myself taking care of other people. And that's been my saviour. It's amazing that you feel that way about caring for other people because nobody, and I'm sorry, it just seems so, it just sounds so awful, but nobody um, until, and I think you were just going to say about meeting your husband, but nobody cared for you. Why would you, you know, you think, why would you care for others when you have just been thrown really on the scrap heap, haven't you? Oh, I'm sorry, that sounds so wrong, but it's... Yeah, it's dead, it's dead right. Um, and that's the thing. I mean, oh, I first found out about the word abortion when it was on the side of a bus when I was about nine, and I turned to my auntie and I said, what does abortion mean? She goes, that's what your mother tried with you. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, God. So that's the thing. I was on the scrap heap. Um, unfortunately, I my father was not a – he was – he should never have married. They should not have married. Um, but she, my mother should not have taken it out of me. What was the worst part about all of this is the fact that she had six kids but she only gave me away. She had three more straight after me literally the next year to another man. So she palmed off all of her own kids to my father, to all her own family, and then she just reinvented herself and started again with another man. And that's been the hardest pill to swallow, being replaced. But you can't feel sorry for yourself. You've got to get on there. You've either got to do what I've done. I, I didn't, I've, I've never been bitter. I don't know why. I'm just a freak of nature. Even as a child, I was never a bitter person because there's always someone else like me out there. And it takes one person. You know, I've always had a motto, if I can make one person smile a day, then it's been a good day. It's just terrible when you've got no one to rely on, no one to turn to. It's a very, very lonely existence. My biggest problem was I would not ask for help. I refused to. I was so fiercely independent. 
and I think that's that was my downfall. But it also got me to where I am. I'm, I'm such a strong person, always have been. Hey, it's Narelle here again. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy the podcasts as much as we enjoy putting them together. But to make sure you never miss an episode of Narelle Fraser Interviews, hit subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a rating and even a review. And please share it with all your friends too. And again, thanks for joining us. We have got some amazing stories to tell. So thanks again. See ya. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.